0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this first weekend of June. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Gas prices smash another record as off-road diesel prices also soar.
2: The nation dealing with about a million barrels a day less of capacity than we had just three years ago.
1: Why higher diesel prices may be here for another two years. USDA announcing changes to early termination of CRP.
3: We think that producers are gonna are welcome the opportunity. We'll break
1: down how many acres could come back into production this year. And in John's world,
4: the Chinese lockdown strategy.
1: Now for the news, the pandemic exposed weaknesses in the food supply chain. And now USDA is looking to prevent those problems from happening again, announcing some new money. Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing a plan he says will transform the country's food system. The secretary unveiling the plan during a speech at Georgetown University this week. The over $2 billion package includes previously announced funding to expand meat and poultry processing and to finance new infrastructure such as cold storage facilities, but there's also $600 million in new aid to support the supply chain outside of meat processing. Other funding you see listed on your screen there, that includes money aimed at reducing food deserts, food loss and waste, and money for farm to school programs.
5: Given all of these challenges that the country faces, one might ask, why are we even talking about transforming the American food system? Well, I believe the answer is simple. It's what we always do in America. When faced with grave challenges, America seizes the opportunity to transform itself into a stronger and better form of itself.
1: USDA saying these initiatives are funded through the American Rescue Plan that was enacted in March of last year, along with other relief legislation. Well, USDA also making a big announcement last week regarding changes to its Conservation Reserve Program. Farm Journal's national reporter Michelle Rook has more details about what the changes
6: mean. As part of an ongoing effort to prevent a global food crisis, USDA announced it will allow Conservation Reserve Program participants in the final year of their contract to request voluntary termination following the end of the nesting season for 2022. Participants approved for this one-time voluntary termination will not have to repay rental payments. FSA Administrator Zach Dushanone tells me the flexibility implemented this year will help mitigate the global food supply challenges caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and other factors.
3: We think that producers are going to are welcome the opportunity. We typically get some folks exercising the voluntary termination clause, even with a reduction in rental rate. So we think that this will really help producers start to plan
5: early.
6: So how many producers will participate? Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack gave his best estimate recently to the Senate Ag Committee.
5: Senator, we announced uh, the fact that in terms of the general sign-up Uh, approximately a little over one million acres that was in the program is coming out of the program. So that million acres is going to be available.
6: Pro-Farmers Jim Wiesmeyer expects less than two million acres would go back into production for the 2023 season. The most likely areas where CRP would be converted would be in colder climates as the flexibility from USDA may allow the planting of winter wheat or better prepare land for spring planting. I'm Michelle Ruck reporting for U.S. Farm Report. Well, after
1: making tremendous progress last week, all eyes were on this week's planting progress report to see if farmers could continue to get a crop in ahead of wheat and soybean planting deadlines. The report showed that farmers have pretty much caught up on average. USDA reporting 86% of the corn is now planted. That's up 14 percentage points from last week and just one point behind the five-year average. North Dakota farmers, they are pressing on, now 56% planted, up 36 points from last week. In Minnesota, now at 82% planted. And for soybeans, 66% of the crop is now planted. That's up 16 points from last week and also just one point behind the five-year average. However, just 23% of the crop is planted in North Dakota, but 55% is planted in Minnesota. All right, that's it for the news. Rains finally falling in some drought-stricken areas, but for the northern Corn Belt, those rains came at a bad time, with farmers running out of time to plant. We'll have a check of your forecast next.
0: It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th.
1: Meteorologist Matt Urasavik joins us now with weather. Matt, Texas and parts of the Southern Plains finally seeing some moisture, maybe too much of a good thing in some of those areas, but is this a sign that the weather patterns are changing for some of these drought-plagued areas?
7: Yeah, Tyne, that's right. And uh, we've got a little bit of moisture on the way for parts of the country that have been dealing with these extreme drought conditions really over the past couple of months. And some of those areas right here in the middle part of the country, we're talking to South Dakota down toward Nebraska, parts of Kansas and Oklahoma going to see some rain this week as well as parts of Montana. They saw some last week, but we need a lot more to even put a dent in some of those drought conditions. Now, meanwhile, while they're starting to improve in some of these places down here, New Mexico, Texas, West Texas, especially back towards uh, southern parts of Nevada and into the San Joaquin Valley there in California, it still looks like it's going to be hot And dry, which means those conditions are going to persist or even get a little bit worse. And then the drought conditions kind of resolving themselves in the east with more rain as we head through uh, last week. So here's a look at our root zone. Still seeing some damp uh, soil conditions here in the east, especially up in parts of the upper Midwest, but still dry in South Dakota uh, and even parts here of uh, parts of Colorado up to Nebraska, western Kansas. And then extremely dry where we've got those extreme to exceptional drought conditions in the South and West. And that unfortunately is going to stay that way with not a lot of moisture expected there, at least over the next week or two. Here's a look at that jet stream. We've got cooler weather to the north, warmer temperatures down to the south, and it's going to be hot and humid from Texas on to the east. Meanwhile, in the southwest, yeah, it's going to be hot. Triple digits possibly expected there in Phoenix for most of next week, but It will also be a dry heat. We're talking about low humidity back there in the west. So we could see a little bit of a dip in the uh, temperatures here, a little bit of an uptick rather in the temperatures across the northern plains as we head through the end of the week as kind of a little bit of a ridge builds through. That will cause some unsettled weather there in the northern plains and through the center of the country. But as we head towards next weekend, things still remain uh, very warm for much of the country. So here's a look at Monday We've got a storm system kind of moving eastward, bringing showers and storms from Tennessee up into the Ohio Valley and the interior parts of the northeast. Showers and storms still down in parts of Florida. Very mild, but still seeing some unsettled weather here where we need it. We need some of that rain back in the northern plains and upper uh, parts of the Rockies there. And meanwhile, hot and dry in the south and west. And here's a look at Wednesday still staying unsettled from the upper Midwest through the center part of the country and into the south. Staying hot and dry again in the southwest all the way through the end of the week before another storm system comes in, bringing more rain and some thunderstorm chances across the middle part of the country could help some more of those drought stricken areas. Meanwhile, remaining very warm in the south. So here's a look at the temperatures this week below normal up to the north above normal down to the south. And there's a look at the precipitation. We're going to keep it above normal for some parts of the country that really need that rain. So that's something we'll continue to watch time back to you.
1: Well weather continues to have a stronghold on the markets. So just how much prevent plant could we see in that northern Corn Belt area? Tommy Grasafi and Brian Split join me next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Tommy Grasafi as well as Brian Split joining us. Brian volatility, the name of the game. Again, we saw a, a few down days to begin the week Thursday. We saw prices increase, but what really pressured prices to start the week?
8: Well, Tyne, uh, you've got the, the planting pace that has increased uh, very rapidly and we're getting close, not quite to where we would be on a normal year. Um, the emergence needs to catch up as well, but it will. Uh, So that's one element. Um, The other element we've seen is that you've got uh, a rather benign weather forecast looking out the next two weeks, so we don't have hot and dry. Uh, And I think that's helped bring some of the the money out of the market. And then you also have the geopolitical element, which is the idea that uh, we will see more grain exported out of the Black Sea region. Uh, Whether that or not that comes to fruition, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, You got a lot of obstacles to get there Uh, namely getting mines out of the ports and getting boat captains to be able to get insured to get their boat there to load the product. Uh, But it does seem like we've got Turkey, which is saying uh, publicly that they're willing to help facilitate all this. So it adds another uh, dynamic to that that brings it a little closer to reality. Um, And then I think you look at why soybeans are holding in. And, uh, And when you look at where Russia is gaining ground and taking control, it's in the eastern regions where we've got the sunflower production. Sunflower oil leads to bean oil, leads to soybeans. Um, And with the oncoming demand from biodiesel, that seems to be helping this soybean market uh, maintain support while we're seeing liquidation in in corn and in wheat.
1: Well, you know, as we look further ahead and and really what could be on the horizon today, though, it's still a nightmare, Tommy, for farmers up in that northern Corn Belt. Your North Dakota, I know, this week boots on the ground talking to farmers Paint the picture there for us as they run out of time to even plant soybeans. What are you seeing and how many prevent plant acres could we see in that area this year, Tommy?
9: I I think the number could be surprising, especially if we catch another rain here in a few days. Uh, Driving around earlier this morning, no no tractors, no planters, maybe people get uh, going here this afternoon, this weekend. If we catch another rain, it's going to really cause problems and people are, are stressed out as it is. So here you you have a perfect situation where you could be massive, massively profitable if you're in the bushel business and you're seeing, put North Dakota down, uh, you could see 800 to a million acres, 800,000 million acres, PP, South Dakota 300, parts Minnesota, couple hundred maybe one and a half million acres of PP, which if you look at history time is normal. Uh, to, to America's a big place. We don't. It doesn't always go perfect. But then you move down south to what's happening in Texas. I just looked down at my phone before you hit record. Cotton was up 400. So we got stuff playing. All the things Brian mentioned, he did a great recap on that. But then you take the weather in the south, the weather in the north. But the one thing people have been calling and telling me to Go on TV. Don't forget the people in Canada. They are wet up there. Wet, wet, wet. They went from a drought to wet. The area in Canada is about three times. uh, Take the state of North Dakota. I three of those. That's how big they farm up there. And those products Brian talked about, the sunflower oil, they grow a lot of canola up there, a lot of wheat, especially the spring wheat and other specialty crops that we don't, we're out of supplies here. We are flat out of grain. We have a positive basis in North Dakota, which used to be the armpit of the world. It is now a hot cash market. There's still water in the fields. This story is not over yet, Tyne.
1: But in a year like this, where supplies are so critical, question marks about what's going on in the world. Can we afford to lose a million and a half acres?
8: Well, you, you may lose that million and a half. I, I tend to think that you could see somewhere between five to six hundred thousand uh, acres of corn added in the I states to help make up for some of that prevent plant there uh, just based on the the rally that we saw in corn versus soybeans leading into the planting time frame. But generally in, in a big picture sense, the ending stocks for corn uh, are tight. Um, we know when the USGA dropped yield to 177 from the 181 that they were using in the outlook forum, um, that really just showed us that with these acres, uh, you could have, a, a, you know, again, a, a retest of record yields, previous record yields, and it really doesn't improve the balance sheet all that much. So, uh, you know, one of the things we'll be looking at moving forward is does the uh, getting back to somewhat normal pace for corn, um, does that prompt the USDA to feel like they could potentially put the yield back up closer to their trend model? Uh, And does that provide a little bit of cushion on the balance sheet here?
1: Tommy, real quick, if we do see a shift in acres up there in that North Dakota area, South Dakota, you're talking to those farmers, which crop loses out on some of those acres and where do you think we gain?
9: Corn would obviously lose, uh, you'd see a pickup in sunflowers, which the world could use those. You'd see obvious pickup in uh, soybeans. And one thing I wanna add to Brian's point, as we're all shifting around, are we gonna lose a million acres? Are we gonna pick up? How's demand gonna be? We gotta remember, The farmer will sell grain when they need money, and right now many farmers don't need the money. So we could produce a big crop and it'll still be in tight hands, something that hasn't happened in years, where the American farmer is sitting there with cash and says, come get it, but at my price, not yours.
1: Yeah, so we're going to look more forward at forward contracting. What could your game plan be as well as, you know, dig into some of these feed costs and livestock producer. What do you need to be thinking about? We're going to do that this weekend later on U.S. Farm Report. Well, 2020, when we had these COVID lockdowns in the U.S., seems so long ago, but it's the opposite in China. As we've reported, their zero-COVID policy has had a strong grip on Shanghai the past several months. Now, things did start to ease this week, with Shanghai's businesses no longer needing to obtain government approval to reopen. But what economic impact are those lockdowns having? John Phipps joins us this weekend for John's World.
4: The zero-COVID, or lockdown, strategy by the Chinese government is slowing their economy. In a rare admission, officials there have lowered their GDP growth estimate significantly, almost totally based on cities that aren't working, especially ports. This approach to containing the virus has long been controversial with epidemiologists and doctors, and while seeming to be effective early in the pandemic, Isolating cities has proven very hard and costly. Coupled with the lower effectiveness of Chinese vaccines and government refusal to use Western MNRA versions, zero COVID shows little hope for improving their economic and public health future. When it was first announced, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was struck by how draconian and difficult to administer this policy was recently i discovered such absolute isolation has a gruesome precedent during the great leap forward in 1958 to 62 china collectivized agriculture with truly disastrous results not only did production plummet as peasants were herded into collectives but Mao Zedong insisted to continue to export badly needed grain to keep up the appearance of success Of course, party officials were reporting grossly inflated harvest numbers to meet impossible goals demanded by the government. Over that time, historians have estimated 20 to 30 million Chinese starved, making it the largest man-made famine in history. Recent releases of local records have many historians raising that figure as high as 50 million unnecessary deaths. But medical experts have been puzzled why that famished population did not experience widespread plagues and diseases due to their weakened condition. The reason was what we are seeing now. Immediate and total isolation of populations, communities, reporting such communicable diseases. This dictatorial approach is a tactic still in living memory for China, and as devastating as it was and is, may not be enough for COVID. Unlike the 60s, however, China's harsh treatment of its own people will have a substantial impact on the global economy, as it will provide one-fifth, the largest share of global economic growth in the next five years. With a million lives lost here in the U.S., we have our own, sorry, COVID history. But China's ongoing difficulty could soon spill into their politics. Watch the subtle and rare public debate between Premier Li Schwan and Xi Jinping for clues.
1: Don't forget, you can catch more of John's commentary on our Farm Journal YouTube page. All right, up next, Machinery Pete, he has a unique tractor and Tractor Tales this weekend.
10: Hey folks, a very special Tractor Tales segment for you today. We're in Dundee, Kentucky and we're here with Darren Luttrell Yes. Darren, this is your grandpa's tractor. Why don't you tell us about it?
5: Yes, this is a uh, 1939 Model A uh, with a number 25 loader on it, cable-controlled loader. Uh, it was the first tractor that was ever bought, that my grandfather ever bought, and uh, from a dealership in Lewisport, Kentucky.
10: What was grandpa's name?
5: Uh, Ray Luttrell. And uh, when he moved over here to Ohio County, he brought the tractor with him, and that's been in the family ever since. He, uh, he paid $1,500 for the tractor, loader, uh, a two-row cultivator, five-foot disc, and a uh, two-row planter. Just like buying a new tractor? Just like buying it. a new tractor today, yes.
10: <laughs> now, Darren, were you telling me that this tractor, the 39, uh, it was actually a demo?
5: It was a demo unit, uh, and uh, built-in 39, and he didn't actually buy it until late 1940, early 1941.
10: Okay, so... He bought that. What was the next brand new John Deere tractor he bought?
5: Next brand new tractor he bought was in the early 70s. It was a John Deere 4430. So this thing
10: uh, was working on the working on the farm. Did the job? It did decades. the
5: job. Yes, yes. Had a pull type mower that uh, mowed all these uh, grass with, and uh, just uh, just worked worked every day. We restored this about 15 years ago and uh, tried to get it in a little bit better shape, had uh, wheels were in bad shape. And then uh, my cousin and uncle have kind of taken it to a little bit to the next level. They've, they've straightened it out a little bit better, but it's, it's still a really nice looking tractor. It's still a usable tractor.
1: Well, retail gas and diesel prices continue to climb and off-road diesel. Well, that's providing sticker shock as well. So what's causing the run-up in prices and how long should you prepare for farm diesel to stay this high? That's our farm journal report next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.
1: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted.
0: Timely. Tradition.
1: Well, diesel prices are at the highest level in the U.S. since the government started tracking prices. And outlooks point to even higher prices ahead. But experts say the U.S. is only one hurricane or Category 3 storm away from a major disaster and a shortage of diesel in the U.S. And that's this weekend's Farm Journal Report. Gas prices continue to crush records in the U.S.
2: It's almost like every five minutes I see the little live indicator tick up on our gas buddy data. We are now at 470 and four tenths.
1: But the pain at the pump isn't just showing up for drivers this summer, it's also an issue plaguing agricultural producers across the U.S.
4: Fuel. We had some farm diesel delivered yesterday and it cost us 485 or 489 a gallon delivered. So two years ago we bought. Fuel for just over a dollar.
1: The rapid rise in input prices is eating into outlooks this year, even with higher livestock and grain prices.
9: It's a challenging market, no doubt. Uh, Buying $8 Eight dollar corn and five and a half dollar diesel is a tremendous challenge for producers.
1: Well, prices at the pump for both gas and diesel climbed this week. It's a similar story for off-road diesel prices. I asked farmers on Twitter to share the prices they are currently seeing. And it ranges from four thirteen in the northern corn belt to over five dollars a gallon farther east and in Montana. But on road diesel prices are also seeing extreme volatility take hold.
2: The wholesale price of diesel fuel also taking a big jump up today, rising about 25 cents a gallon. So the decrease in diesel, well, enjoy it because we probably will see diesel Going alongside gasoline and both of them jumping up.
1: Research by Texas A&M Agricultural and Food Policy Center shows farmers are seeing nearly every input cost on their farm rise this year. With nitrogen prices producing the biggest increase, up more than 133% per acre year over year. Phosphorus and potassium fertilizer, well that's up nearly 93%, followed by fuel and lube jumping more than 86% compared to last year and the latest baseline projections from the University of Missouri's Food and Policy Research Institute also shows the sharp rise in fuel costs today.
10: A 50 some percent increase may or may not capture what's happening right now throughout the whole calendar year of 2022. But it is capturing at least that part that we're seeing right now.
1: Even if fuel prices retreat the second half of this year, higher overall production expenses will continue to sway balance sheets.
10: It will vary quite a bit on the dollars per acre impact, but but if you have about an equal increase on a percentage change basis, You will see those dollars per acre be more expensive in
3: this this, uh, calendar year.
1: So why have diesel prices raced higher this year? Well, it's largely due to a shortage of refining capacity, not a shortage of oil. The
2: nation dealing with about a million barrels a day less of capacity than we had just three years ago. That's the equivalent of about 5%. So not only is oil a problem with sanctions on Russia's oil, but turning that oil into something like gasoline and diesel is also now a choke point.
1: S&P Global Commodity Insights is also watching the situation at a time when the U.S. is typically building inventory again. It seems hurdle after hurdle is what's making that more difficult.
10: Refineries, we have less capacity. We have about 1.2 million barrels a day of less capacity because of shutdowns that occurred both prior to the pandemic, uh, right before the pandemic started.
1: Another issue is refineries hit by Hurricane Ida last fall that never came back online, which was one of the initial dominoes to fall for diesel prices.
10: When you look at the cost of producing diesel, this all actually started before the war in October of last year. And why is that important to to a Midwest farmer? It's because the cost of producing that diesel increased with it.
1: So just how tight are diesel supplies today? Both DeHaan and Chattery say it's critically tight, and the likelihood of a shortage grows by the day.
2: We're probably one Category 3 storm away, uh, and that Category 3 storm would have to take aim for an area roughly from the Mississippi River to Houston. That's the really sensitive area. Of course, not only could it affect refining, but it could affect offshore oil production.
1: While the White House is weighing, tapping into diesel reserves to help ease a shortage, the reserves are relatively small.
2: It's only a million barrels, uh, so it's not a, a infinite amount of supply. The worry is that if we release those barrels of diesel now from areas of the Northeast, we're also in the start of hurricane season. You use them now because of high prices or shortages. Or do you wait for a bigger potential issue later this summer?
1: Chattery says tapping into reserves isn't the only option to help ease shortage concerns. Because of
10: environmental regulations, we need to remove sulfur from uh, diesel. And how we do that is with hydrogen. The hydrogen price in Europe is tied to natural gas, and so when that price goes up, It costs a lot more to produce diesel
1: in Europe. He says the U.S. also ramped up diesel exports to Europe this year as they also face supply concerns.
10: The U.S. refiner now has to decide, do we send product to Europe? And we can send it via pipeline easily, but because of the Jones Act, uh, which is a regulation that mandates um, U.S. flagged vessels from port to port, it's not something that we could do now, and that's something that The government could look at waiving if we do face a shortage.
1: While a possible diesel shortage is looming, diesel prices aren't forecast to see a dramatic drop anytime soon.
10: You know, these prices are not going to go back to the levels we had at the beginning of uh, 2021. It's more likely that we'll see maybe five to $10 decline in crude price and that would equate, equate to maybe 50 to 60 cents um, uh, on, on the diesel price itself.
1: That says diesel prices could remain high for at least two years.
2: Well it could take a couple of years and keep in mind the longer we go down this road that demand eclipses supply the more catching up we're going to have to do.
1: Now, there is a caveat here with all of this. The one thing that could cause gas and diesel prices to derail from the forecasted run-up is demand destruction. So if people start driving or flying less, that could cause prices to ease. But as you just heard, market watchers still don't expect diesel prices to fall back below prices we saw last year for two more years. All right, when we come back, Tommy Grasafi and Brian Split rejoin us for our Marketing Roundtables. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, Brian, in that first roundtable, we talked a lot about, you know, what's going on geopolitically, what's going on with, with some of the supplies that are setting right now in Ukraine. Will we get those supplies out? But as all of this uncertainty continues to weigh on the market, as we enter into this critical time for weather, Ford contracting and some of those prices, is, is that something you're really encouraging producers to look at right now?
8: Yeah, Tyne, one of the things that we've looked at, and, and uh, this was predominantly when we've been trading in that 730 to 750 zone, was really just the idea of doing some good cash sales. Uh, and if you wanted to be bullish, be bullish with some calls. Uh, you know, We had implemented some of the August short-dated options as far as calls. Uh, typically, uh, I would say most producers looked at the $8 strike price. And when you just did the math of making a, a sale and then assuming that that call went to zero, it still puts your futures, worst-case scenario, above $7. Uh, and that seemed to be a level that just made good sense based on the revenue that you can lock in Uh, now we pull back a little bit here Uh, still seven dollar corn is a good price for corn Um, now one of the problems for the end user that we're seeing is that even though the board has come down substantially if you look at those feeding cattle out west board drops 40 basis gets stronger by 40 cents and the cash price stays the same so if, a produ- or if an end user has been hedged in an account in futures, they've experienced a loss in their account, they're still paying the same for their, their cash product. Uh, so that's where implementing option strategies to at least kind of keep a cap on things uh, without having a, the, the flat price risk in the account has worked out uh, very well for the end user.
1: As we look at some of these other commodities, Tommy, natural gas, when you look at prices there, we have just seen a impressive run up with prices not good news uh for the end user when it comes to that but what's driving those prices and 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 as of right now does it look like there's not a slowdown in sight
9: europe is on the verge of a major energy crisis and we're being told in america it's okay just go buy a battery-operated car as long as you have seventy thousand k for the average working person and and it'll fix it so as gas prices fuel unleaded start to hit 556 dollars in uh Suburbs across America, you look at natural gas and propane that the world has plenty of stuff, but getting to it and getting through regulations and jumping through hoops is a real problem as I sit today in North Dakota. Trust me, we have plenty of fuel. It's just uh, getting through the hoops to do it.
1: Well, when you look at some of these other outside markets, I mean, right now, you know, we just finished talking about about diesel prices and gas prices. And when you look at inflation and now talk of a possible recession, I mean, some of these outside markets though, Brian, which ones are you watching closely that could have an impact on agricultural commodities?
8: I think the energy market first and foremost is the one that uh, we're watching. When you look at new contract highs for RBOB, which is your unleaded uh, gasoline, you look at new contract highs for heating oil, which would be a proxy for diesel. Um, you look at the fact that OPEC agreed to increase production and, and about 50% more than what the trade was expecting. We had sold off from that and came back immediately uh, to trade 5 to $6 off of that low. Um, this market is, is concerned about energy. At some point, you're going to reach a breaking point. And I wonder if you're going to start to see some behaviors change because gasoline around me is nearly $6 a gallon at the pump. Um, and so for the average working person, the amount of money that it costs them to get to work right now uh, is it, staggering. So it, it's something where the energy is going to be something moving forward for the producer, the cost to dry their corn next fall, especially if we have a late harvest or a wet harvest, the trucking costs. Uh, this is all eating into the big picture for them.
1: Yeah. And Tommy, as we see this rapid rise in input costs that farmers and ranchers are facing today, You know, what's the likelihood that these input costs do remain high even in 2023? And what concerns do you have if grain prices don't hold?
9: Well, one of the things that people probably aren't paying attention to because they're so uh, working so hard to get the crop in as the American farmer hats off. You're the best. And you did get it in is that they're not paying attention to DCE23. A combination of fertilizer prices that have traded down in the last few weeks. Uh, allegedly, you know, assuming you could buy it, no one will really make a market yet. But fertilizers come down in D23, 680 down to 615. Will you make money with $6 corn next year? Maybe a little, but I don't think you'll make a lot. So input prices are going up. Rents are going up. There's nobody that doesn't know that things are good right now in ag. And we're going through a boom bust period.
1: All right, Tommy, Brian, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, it's often referred to as America's national pastime. And with baseball in full swing, the sport actually played a vital role in shaping this nation. And for one iconic baseball spot, it has some very strong farming roots. We travel the countryside this weekend with Andrew McRae to Cooperstown, New York.
0: When people hear of Cooperstown, New York, they often think of baseball. They aren't wrong but there's an important part of the story about this town on Lake Otsego that we should cover first.
11: So in 1786 we were founded, and throughout the 19th century, the 1800s, we were really kind of a tourism mecca for what someone who is was considered uh, one of the early novelists in America, James Fenimore Cooper.
0: Ellen Telepaw is the mayor of Cooperstown. The town was named for Judge William Cooper, the founder of the village and father of the famous novelist who wrote works like The Last of the Mohicans. But today, many know the town for the supposed invention of baseball by Abner Doubleday on an open parcel of land here.
11: They called it Finney's Cow Pasture, and it basically was the back lots of many of the houses that surrounded it. At turn of the century, early 1900s, there was a desire to create a field here.
0: Eventually, an actual baseball field founded in the early 1920s named Doubleday Field was built on the site of Finney's Cow Pasture, the site once thought to be the birthplace of the game. The historic field gets plenty of use yet today.
11: We rent the field three times a day from April till Columbus Day in October.
0: While baseball was played here from an early date, it was most likely not the place the game was founded. The folks in Cooperstown don't dispute that fact, but these days, it doesn't really matter.
11: Whether we're the true home of baseball, we certainly weren't the place it was founded, but we are America's home for baseball.
0: The Baseball Hall of Fame was founded here in 1936 and draws thousands each year. It's a pilgrimage spot for most baseball fans and a goal for most Major League players to be enshrined here. People travel here year-round, and a huge crowd descends on the town for each new class of Hall of Famers inducted. It all takes place in a very small town.
11: We're less than 1800, we're a very small village. We welcome hundreds of thousands of people every year.
0: When you come to this town, you'll find visitors wearing the logos of their favorite teams. There's something special about this destination, especially for those who've played the game of baseball. It's the road to Cooperstown. Traveling the countryside in Cooperstown, New York, I'm Andrew McCray.
1: Now you can travel along with Andrew McCray across the American countryside even more on our YouTube page. Thanks so much, Andrew. All right, when we come back, a question about the accuracy of the US drought monitor. Customer support is next.
4: How exactly do we measure drought?
1: for the first time since last November, we're seeing less than 50% of the lower 48 states in drought. That is breaking the 27-week streak and missing the previous all-time record of 42 consecutive weeks of 50% of the country in drought. That was set back in 2012 to 2013. But how accurate is the drought
4: monitor? That's customer support this week. From Susan Ratwick in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. I've been following the drought monitor on U.S. Farm Report this winter, and I am interested in finding out how drought level and soil moisture level are determined. I have noticed that Sault Ste. Marie in Chippewa County, Michigan, at the eastern end of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, has been consistently indicated as a drought area. But we already have had 130 inches of snow this season, and our average is 120 inches. By the way, this was written some time ago. And we are still getting snow and rain. I appreciate the fact that many people would be happy to have the extra snow this year, but I'm just wondering about the accuracy or precision of the drought monitor. Also, at least this week, our root moisture level was not dry. How can this be if we are categorized as in drought? And how can they estimate soil moisture when the snow is still two feet deep? Well, these are tricky questions and it took a lot of research. Here's what I found out. Degrees of drought are determined in several ways. One is by actual precipitation compared to historic levels over some previous period of time. This is the standard precipitation index, (SBI), which looks like this. The familiar drought monitor shown here does show the UP as abnormally dry, but that's the lowest drought level possible. Like the SPI, it's a comparison of how much water is available according to hydrologists compared to the same time in previous years. The Palmer Drought Severity Index, the PDSI, is even more complex with extensive soil data. According to the PDSI, the UP is in pretty good condition. Now, I could drone on about all the research I did for this answer, but I think that there's one really important point. Snow is a tricky way to offset drought. As everyone in California knows, for snow to provide usable moisture, you need not just lots of snow, but good-sized mountains to store and slowly release the snow. Here in the Midwest, snow falls often on frozen soil and melts from the top down. In other words, Snow for us is mostly frozen runoff waiting for warmer weather. The now more common larger rain events are similar. Once the topsoil is saturated, the rest rushes off, usually carrying too much soil with it. The best way for precipitation to mitigate drought conditions is multiple moderate rain events for several months or even years. Finally, I suggest many of you would find drought.gov a great place to learn about drought. I know I did.
1: Thanks, John. Well, winter wheat harvest is underway in the Southern Plains, and we're off to the fields of Oklahoma next. Well, wheat harvest typically paints a picture of beauty. The iconic amber waves of grain is symbolic. And this year, wheat harvest is off to an early start for some farmers until it came to an abrupt halt with rain. What typically is a busy time of year with wheat harvest is showing scars of the drought this year.
3: We've not seen that many custom cutters in the area this year, which is a little bit scary.
1: Jimmy Kinder farms in Southern Oklahoma and harvest this year is anything but normal.
3: No lines at the elevator. Uh, That's also kind of scary. Plagued with drought all year as harvest ushered in, so did those long-awaited rains. We had uh, about two inches of rain last week And so that got us slowed down a little bit. But with strong winds, it didn't keep him out of the field for long. Western Oklahoma, we're kind of short of wheat crop. So they're able to travel pretty fast across the acres. And uh, our yields are anywhere from 10 to 30 bushels so far. And that's kind of what we've expected.
1: And even with wheat prices double what he saw last year, the farm financial picture isn't all upbeat.
3: We're going to probably gross the same amount of dollars we normally do because we're having a half a wheat crop and double the price. So we're thankful that that the price has responded well.
1: All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report. This weekend, next week, we're on the road to World Pork Expo in Des Moines, Iowa. From digging into export demand and if pork exports can make a rebound the second half of this year, to also exploring sustainability efforts by pork producers today. We'll cover it all from World Pork Expo next week. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.